Hello, creeps. Welcome to the Horror Vanguard. I'll be your ghost. I mean, host, for today's exciting tale of terror. It's a wonderful life, or it's a technically horror Christmas. <laughs> uh, hello, everybody. Welcome to a very special uh, Christmas episode of Horror Vanguard. My name is John, the Liquid Guy, joined as always by my co-ghost Ash. Ash, how are you doing? I'm I'm doing doing pretty good. We're we're starting we're starting the special the specialist most magical time of the year uh, off with a bang this time. We absolutely are. We're talking about maybe one of the best. Uh, I you know what I'm just gonna say one of one of what I think is one of the best movies of of all time. Uh, but just right at the top of the show, uh, please be aware that what we're talking about today is going to feature quite heavily uh, suicide. So if that is something that is going to be triggering or uncomfortable for you, please do skip this episode, rejoin us next time. But without further ado, on with the show. This program is made possible by contributions from listeners like you. Go to patreon.com slash horrorvanguard and get access to bonus episodes and other exclusive content. Thank you for listening and stay spooky. It's not wolves. It's wolf. 20,000 years. 10 times you're fucking Christian era. Uh, I am very excited about. I'm very excited about today's episode. Um, uh, honestly, you know, re- rewatching the film uh, was kind of a joy to prepare for this week's episode. It's one of those films I've seen so many times, but I'm aware uh, there might be people listening to this uh, episode of HV who, believe it or not, have maybe never seen this film. Um, so, Ash, what is? The 1946 Frank Capra classic, <laughs> It's a Wonderful Life, all about. In order to understand what this film is about, we must first understand who the main character is. Who is George Bailey? What is the fundamental condition of his character? That, dear listener, is that he is a loser. We watch a young man with hopes for a life defined by freedom get subsumed into systems beyond his control. The starry-eyed look of a traveler gives way, slowly, to a man that becomes reluctantly moored to a shabby little town. Through time and time, he accretes anger and bitterness, like a docked boat picking up the the detritus of the sea. Ultimately weighed down by perceived failures and broken by the machinations of our modern times, He resolves to take his own life. The moment he stands on that precipice, we see in his eyes that he has resolved to die. He is saved, however, by the one thing that has been saving him this entire time. In an act more at home in the non-Euclidean halls of weird fiction, an entire town prays to a cosmic god for the salvation of a desperate man. Though he does not know it yet, George has been saved by the community that he has worked to build all these years. In Mark Fisher's sense of the weird and the eerie, we find our missing community. It is at once something that is here, but which the oppressive Mr. Potters of our world say should not be, and something that makes the absence of its presence felt. 
It is at once a specter warning us of an even more atomized time and an angel pointing towards our salvation. Like the bell that rings to grant wings to second-class angels, the bread and roses soul of socialist politics rings through the noise of our lives. All obscurantism, intentional or otherwise, wilts at the somber glory of this tone. It's a Wonderful Life is a love song to losers, to people who have to live by piecing together their broken dreams. It's a wonder of a salvaged life. None of us are going to be heroes at the center of the action, because we are all already heroes in the lives we touch. Join us as we discuss the sleeper hit of 1946, It's a Wonderful Life. Mmm, yes. Love it. Absolutely love it. Um, uh, honestly, I, 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 this might just be a reflection of how of how I feel about the film, but honestly, I think that's maybe one of my favorite ones you've ever done. No, oh, I thank you. Just that's so good. Um, I, I'm, I'm really excited about about getting to do this, and I, I know there might be some people listening who go, oh, "But you're a horror movie podcast." But we are going to get to that. We're going to get to to why we're talking about this film. Um, but where do you want to where do you want to start? with it's wonderful life um so i think i think the first thing we should do right off the bat before we do the second thing we should do which is uh defend why it's a wonderful life is a horror movie <laughs> is is just kind of like address some of the i'll say i'll say dated dated things that are that are in this movie uh yeah there are i mean lots of this film has aged uh very well but there are um plenty of bits of this which have not aged well in the slightest yeah, there, there, there's a lot of uh, misogyny that kind of goes into this movie, um, and I think like there's definitely a lot of racism. Um, Lillian Randolph uh, plays a character uh, named Annie, which plays into a lot of really uh, awful stereotypes of kind of like older black women that emerge out of uh, Reconstruction, mm-hmm. right? Like, like the the, the the character that she portrays is a, is a creation of it's it's propaganda designed to make slavery look more wholesome and appealing so there's a lot of there's a lot of that there's a lot of that baggage that comes with a movie from 1946 yeah absolutely um as you say there is there is um it's 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 not particularly it it it's it's of its time when it comes to gender relations as well it's uh there's a weird misogynistic uh subplot with Donna Reed's character um and in fact, quite a lot of the ways in which uh, women are presented and related to uh, are kind of like problematic and, and uh, chauvinistic, I think, is maybe the mm-hmm. word that I would use. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's, it's a movie that if it's, if it's hampered by anything, it's hampered by the fact that it, it doesn't have a critical framework inside of itself with which to be aware of things like gender and race. Uh, yes, absolutely. Um which, you know, I I think people would be able to tell that we both really like the film, but that doesn't negate extremely valid criticisms of it or like undercut the need to actually be aware of uh, a kind of intersectional critique of texts that we're dealing with. Oh, absolutely! Like we we live in a very uh, troubled and messed up time, and the art produced by that is a reflection of it, right? Like there, there is no escaping this. There is no art that is like 
holistically perfect you know it's all going to carry with it a lot of the 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 weight and agony of the time in which it's created and it's important to find ways to grapple with those texts you know because they for better or for worse do kind of emerge as defining pieces of art yeah absolutely um there are contradictions and and things that kind of have to be teased out so like maybe before we get into this film and and more specifically why are we doing this Ash? Why, why, <laughs> why why are we doing this why why is a horror movie podcast talking about what some people might think is just the kind of schmaltzy sentimental capra film from the 40s because it's a horror movie john <laughs> <laughs> Um, no, so so uh, I, I think like there, there, there's a tendency to sum down uh, uh, everything that's horror or everything that's goth into into the most uh, clearly demonstrable manifestations of those things, and, and like so, like Marilyn Manson and the Halloween franchise and stuff like that. You know, those are really loud, really marketable definitions of horror and goth. But 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 these are historic modalities of art that go back hundreds of years, you know, in in just a contemporary sense, right? Contemporary horror, contemporary gothic is hundreds of years old. Uh, uh, the the art of scaring someone with works of fiction is as old as humanity itself. Uh, no, there is no doubt in my mind that our cave ancestors were telling cave ghost score stories back in cave days, right? Oh yeah, and so like. The way these things interweave and tangle with each other is powerful and that needs to be contended with. You know, like this is a movie about a man who's driven to suicide by a bleak and barely survivable world who is only saved because uh, the divine intervention of unknowable cosmic beings send him to a dimension wherein he never existed in the first place. Yeah, and I think I think people people often this is something I've been thinking about for a while which is that I actually think good horror always includes a kind of redemptive possibility within it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so people see this film and they go oh it's it's melodramatic it's it's set at christmas you know maybe it made you cry if it didn't I I have serious doubts about you. Uh <laughs> <laughs> And they think that that's like, oh, it's a sentimental film. It's a melodramatic film. And actually, no. Uh, the reason is that it's so emotionally impactful is because it's it's essentially, it's a horror story. It's about, it's about going through uh, death almost and seeing what, getting to see the consequences of what your own death would be is a genuinely terrifying idea. Yeah, no, I I completely agree with that, and like I think this is this is ur to the holiday condition, right? Like Christmas straddles this weird liminal space in our kind of cultural imagination because it's simultaneously uh, uh, the hardest time of the year, right? Like your food stores are running low, like every everything is dwindling. It's the oppressive grasp of winter. And it's also a, a kind of joyous celebration, right? Like it's it's the the end of the long nights, right? It's it's the beginning of better times, and both of those things kind of collapse into this Christmas Gothic tradition, into these Christmas ghost stories. 
Yeah, absolutely. Which we'll be looking at this month in technically horror Christmas. <laughs> it is a technically horror kind of Christmas. Um, but yeah, this this idea of what would the world be like if I if I wasn't here uh, is a kind of terrifying thought that I think is probably really widely shared. You know, everyone has had those uh, long dark nights of the soul where you kind of think, you know. W- would anybody notice is really an existential condition right it's this mm-hmm. idea of like would, would people notice if i were gone and so the reason that the ending hits so hard and the reason that so many people find this a deeply moving film to watch and watch repeatedly is because that that existential question at the core of it is a question that horror is the best thing suited to answer yeah yeah no that is, that is 100 percent accurate Spooky season never ends. <laughs> but let's kind of let's let's set the stage for this, right? So, nineteen nineteen forty six after the war, uh, directed by Frank Capra. It is uh, it's got a very contested uh, writing history. Who got the screenwriting credits is very mm-hmm. complicated. We won't get into that. Capra's this Capra's an interesting figure. Um, this Republican filmmaker. But in the 30s, had made a whole host of very populist, kind of naive, idealist films about democracy. Um, you know, most famous one, Mr. Smith Goes to Washington, another Jimmy Stewart film. Um, Post-World War II, Capra is is kind of uh, not very popular, kind of at a bit of a loose end. Uh, and just as is Jimmy Stewart. So he comes back from the war basically not really wanting to do this anymore because it all seems a bit pointless and they knock out this film now th- i i know you've you've kind of done some reading on this like this this film maybe didn't do all that well when it first came out um yeah th- this movie tanked and it tanked hard um mixed critical reception some people really liked it a lot of people really didn't um it was filmed on a budget of three 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 point something million in 1946 money uh which was a lot of money it's a lot of money now and that's a lot a lot of money back then yeah um the the film didn't even get near breaking even right so this this was a huge blow to the studio mm-hmm. um and and on top of that like the film itself like troubled production like this movie is riddled with technical flaws like there, there's there's just constant continuity problems throughout the entirety of the film. Lots of uh, uh, dialogue issues here and there. Like uh, uh, Stuart gets uh, characters' names wrong occasionally. <laughs> uh, yep, yep. Uh, and they didn't redub it. <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah. There wasn't an attempt to fix much of that. So like, uh, uh, th- this movie is just like riddled with holes and and technical problems. Um, it, it winds up becoming so popular because like people forgot to re-up the copyright. So this this movie kind of fell into the public domain for a short period of time, which allowed uh, TV channels to pick it up for no money and turn it into a Christmas classic because it didn't cost them anything to play it, unlike other Christmas movies, which would have cost them money. Wasn't it like first on PBS? Yeah, yeah, I think I think that's right. I think it's something like PBS and then BBC picked it up and like like it kind of becomes like, in in a very popular Christmas movie, thanks to, uh, or, or I guess I should say, like this movie is a great example of why we need to destroy copyright law <laughs> yeah, in correct. its entirety. <laughs> correct. Because yeah. like I was, 
I was I was reading one review of this movie and they were comparing it to another Christmas movie that came out in 1946. And I don't remember the title of the other movie because I looked it up and like nobody gives a fuck about that movie anymore. Nobody talks about it. It, 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 It never got TV play. And and there's no doubt in my mind that it's because like somebody tried to hold on to the copyright for that one and wait for somebody to buy it. Mm-hmm. Whereas this movie was just allowed to be free and it rediscovered itself as a timeless classic. Uh, it's there's this great quote from Capra. He says that like he kind of had to let it go and just you know see. And he said it's sort of like having a child that you lose contact with and they grow up to become president of the United States. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think that's really or probably the most accurate way to describe this. Um, there is, there is, uh, it's a very, it, I actually think it's a very beautiful film. It's incredibly um, well shot and lit. Uh, it's, it, it's a black and white film. And bizarrely, there are multiple colorized versions. Um, and the colorized versions are under copyright, or at least they were, as far as I know. Mm-hmm. So it would actually cost you more to broadcast a color version of It's Wonderful Life than it would to find the original black and white print and do that and broadcast it at cost. And it's just this uh, this kind of strange example of this of the way in which like you know improvements to works of art are in fact just another way of attempting to commodify art. So uh, the version of this that I watched was an upscaled 4K copy. Right, yeah. Which, one, you don't need. You really, <laughs> truly don't need the 4K. You need Jimmy Stewart in 4K. <laughs> well, so the thing is, like, like uh, the 4K experience made watching this so much worse. Yes. Um, this, so, so the way they made Snow and It's a Wonderful Life actually won a bunch of scientific awards for being really innovative. Because before this, you made Snow by using cornflakes, the cereal. Mm-hmm. Um, but that caused tons of technical problems, right? Because you, you can't record audio when you're dumping corn or cornflakes on your characters because it just messes up everything. So you had to redub all your snowing scenes and like it was a huge mess. So for this one, they used um, a, a fire suppressant chemical yeah. and soap. To, to, to create the snow in this movie. And if you're not watching the 4K, 100% believable, looks incredible, feels and operates like snow should. Um, when you're watching the 4K, you can see that it's it's a soapy goo. Um, <laughs> and it looks really awkward on everything. Um, and like I went back and I watched like a non 4K version of it. And it, it, it looks so good. It looks so incredible as it was intended to be seen. But when you try and upscale this stuff as a way to like squeeze money out of people, you'll lose a lot of that magic. Yeah, th- we've said this so many times uh, on the show. Greater fidelity, greater quote unquote realism is not a good thing. Yeah, not not at all, especially for a movie that's like 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 I was talking earlier about like all the flaws that are in this film, and like this is this is a movie that is beautiful because of all the flaws in it. Yeah, like absolutely. there are so many. There are there are so many movement <laughs> movements moments like um uh, uh that are that are completely on accident um like um when uncle uh when when the uncle is leaving the party he's leaving the leaving the wedding party and he's drunk yeah <laughs> and and you hear him stumble and into into like probably garbage cans off stage that was an accident. The, the second he walks out of frame, a, a stagehand tripped and dropped a tray full of props. 
<laughs> and like, and so, and so the, that, that actor in the moment was like, oh, oh yeah, I'm fine. I'm fine. You know, he was just trying to play it off. And like James Stewart was so caught up in the moment that laugh was organic. He's laughing at his fellow actor trying to save the shot. <laughs> <laughs> and there's tons, there's tons of little moments like that throughout the movie where like things are improv, the reactions are so honest. Uh, Copper made the decision to keep a lot of first takes of things because people got into like really emotional places yeah, and yeah. like yeah, that, I think that adds to the power of this movie is how how rough it is adds a layer of realism that you wouldn't get otherwise. And I think it helps people connect with it. You know, if you had hyper fidelity, you know, everything was kind of slick and rehearsed. People wouldn't. It it just wouldn't it just wouldn't resonate with people. And I mean, let's be honest. It opens the film opens in like in the kind of hokiest most it's just very simple right it's a very simple straightforward opening which mm -hmm. uh is a, a book we, yeah. we 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 just open on the story as it were yeah I, I love i love the opening to this because it situates it in the context of uh the the unspoken true christmas tradition of christmas ghost stories yes absolutely and like, make no mistake, this is 100% a, a ghost story, right? Like, George Bailey becomes dead in, in this movie. He becomes a phantom in his own life. Yeah, it's it's reminiscent of like a Dickens short story that he would write for his magazines. You know, oh, it, yeah, yeah. It, has, it has a kind of moral core to it, but it's also about kind of death and, and, and spooky things. Yeah, yeah. Clarence very much does the ghost of Christmas future job there. Yeah, as well as uh, having the kind of like uh, joy of the ghost of Christmas past. Like it's mm -hmm. it's a very kind of classic way of opening the story. But like as soon as you as soon as you stop and think about this story for more than a few minutes, this very sentimental surface level reading of the film just kind of falls apart. Um, you know, uh, on our on our note stock where we kind of put the ideas of things we want to talk about. All I wrote for this point is like living in Bedford Falls will literally drive you to suicide. You know, it's incredibly bleak what happens to George. You know, anytime he kind of sets up a goal or an aspiration for his life, it's thwarted. Uh, sometimes by choice, he has moments where he could walk away, uh, but he chooses to stay. Um and any any desire he has to kind of like leave it's almost like it's almost like trying to like leave a prison where the doors just keep sealing themselves shut in front of you yeah yeah that, i mean like that's that's 100% accurate interpretation of this movie <laughs> and like he is he is always running into that from childhood through adulthood he is always putting other people first and taking sacrifices and by and by he does wind up is completely stripped of of everything he ever wanted to really accomplish in his life yeah i mean the the, the horrible moment is uh where it seems like uh his uncle his uncle billy has lost eight thousand mm -hmm. dollars uh and he goes home and he's this kind of abusive monster to his to his wife and and, and kids and it's like well this is what living here you know let's not I'm not explaining away that kind of behavior, but it's like, this is what living here has done. You know, there's a lifetime of kind of resentment that builds up all of these kind of ways in which he's deferred his own desires 
uh, builds up. There's this great quote from um, uh, an article in the New York Times talking about the film. Uh, the article says the film is great, uh, but it also says <laughs> uh, it's a terrifying, asphyxiating story about growing up and relinquishing your dreams of seeing your father driven to the grave before his time of living among bitter small-minded people it's a story of being trapped of compromising of watching others move ahead and away of becoming so filled with rage that you verbally abuse your children their teacher and your oppressively perfect wife i think that's i think that's really powerful and i think there, there's something instructive to this right like george bailey is made abuse an abuser through an abusive system right he's constantly been ground up by by this world that he's living in and that in turn is transforming him into something awful and we're, we're seeing like this this cyclical nature of, of abuse come out through his character right you know he's he's becoming like we, we get that scene with um mr gower and at the start of the movie yeah. Uh, well, where George Bailey winds up saving the life of of someone who's sick because Mr. Gower, who's you know struggling with addiction, uh, mistakenly puts poison in the pills instead of the medicine in a in a bottle with a giant label on the front that just says poison. <laughs> just says, oh, why do you have that bottle in your drug in Mr. Your, Gower in your drugstore? <laughs> it's v very much for us, the audience, so we don't have to read some tiny label that has a science name, and it could just have a big, scary poison label. But yeah, but um, but but like you know, like we see in that scene, like you know, like George Bailey as a kid gets gets his ears boxed by Mr. Gower, and like that scene really happened in the movie, by the way. That's not stage blood coming out of that kid's ear; that's real blood. Yeah. Um, and and uh, the uh, actor who played Mr. Gower, H. B. Warner, actually got really drunk to film that scene. So it, it adds to the, a lot of this movie is just so real because it's legitimately real. But you're, you're quite right. Like the, that whole scene where he kind of, he, he blows up at his wife and uh, wife and children. It, it is exactly this point that these things are produced and exacerbated by your social conditions. Right. So Mr. Gower mm -hmm. has a drinking problem. He's drinking that day because he's gotten a telegram that says his son has died, uh, who is serving in the army. Uh, and he he makes a a kind of horrible mistake, or you could attribute it to deliberate malice. Uh, and mm -hmm. what's interesting is in the in the universe where George is never there, uh, Mr. Gower ends up going to jail for twenty years for for poisoning somebody, and he comes out this kind of broken uh, man. His addiction problems have have only gotten worse. So it's like you can you can attribute kind of malice to what might just be a uh an event that has been produced by various other material forces right and especially like like what, what does george decide to do first right he, he looks on the wall and he sees the poster that says it's got some like truly schmaltzy thing on it like when in doubt always ask your pop you know it's got some like it's so hokey yeah, yeah. but he but he, see, he sees that advertisement and he's like oh like I, I know that there's poison in these pills, but I'm like 10. I don't know what to do. I'm going to go ask my dad. But he can't ask his dad because his dad is fighting with Mr. Potter, you know, and like we, we see we see the systemic interconnectivity here, right? Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. uh, you know, Mr. Bailey Sr. can't properly father his child because he's busy wrestling the, the machinery of monopoly and capitalism 
you know, like he, he can't he can't he can't pause a meeting long enough to be like, oh, OK, wow, this is a serious problem. Let me intervene as an adult in this situation. And so he leaves it to a little boy to solve this like life and death issue. And th- th- and this kind of goes wider as well. You know, Potter, mm-hmm. uh, Potter owns half, half of the, the town. You know, uh, Mr. Gower's probably paying his rent to Potter. Like mm-hmm. so, so those economic and social factors are decisively influential, right? And it's a mistake to uh, individuate things too much, right? Especially when we're trying to kind of like look at something as a kind of moral problem. Systems yeah, are yeah. systems are real and kind of powerful, even when they're presented in a film which is very much focused upon a particular individual. Yeah, I think I think it would be too easy to read this movie as being about individual choices and individual decisions and this kind of like American conservative bootstrap mentality. I think it's a mistake to try and read that into the film because I textually I don't think it's there. Like textually, this is a movie about systems and community. Yeah, I mean, you know, um, even even though that's the kind of uh, the easy read to talk about, you know. The, the getting on and doing your best wherever you end up uh it's it's about this this networked relationships you know mm-hmm. he says where he he gets taken by clarence when he has his vision of this other world where he's never existed and he sees his brother's grave uh and of course this is happening on the on the day before his brother is due to return home after getting the congressional medal of honor for saving some sailors on a transport ship and he says you know that's not Harry's grave. Harry Harry went to war. Uh, he won the Congressional Medal. He saved everybody on that on that transport. And Clarence has to tell him, no, everybody on that transport died. They all died mm-hmm. Harry, b- because you weren't there. And it's this idea of like a single individual action, however small, has impacts that kind of reach far beyond individual choices. Yeah, and that's and that's the, the, the this movie I think is picking a very important one to use because it's also kind of obvious, you know, because you can kind of logically just suss out like, oh, if I would have never saved my brother's life when he was a small boy, he would have never grown up to be a hero who saved a bunch of people on a boat. But I think what it's what it's tilting towards and what it's alluding to is that we are we are so hopelessly interconnected. In, in ways that no amount of rigorous self-study could ever possibly map out, you know? And like, th- there are those obvious moments where you can definitively say like, oh, like I, I did this very clear thing that very directly helped someone out. But there are, for every one of those moments, there are countless others where you have made some outstandingly impactful uh, effect on someone's life. Yeah, and you're never gonna know. Well, the reason I I, I talk about that example is, you ne- we never see Harry save people. We mm-hmm. never see it. We never see those people that he saved, and and that's an incredibly cool thing to think about, right? This idea that there are consequences to choices and decisions that we've made, um, which will kind of resonate in in ways that we will never even be aware of, um. But yeah, like ultimately, I think anyone who says, oh, I'd love to live in Bedford Falls, you aren't paying attention to what the film is trying to tell you. Right. And, and if, and if that, that impulse does exist, it's just a reflection about how, how much our modern reality is actually Pottersville. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, we'll, we'll get onto that. But like 
We, we will. <laughs> we all live in Pottersville now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There, there, there's so much in this movie where it's just like, like I, I'm in my 30s and I have no hope of ever owning a home unless there is massive societal change. Like that is just, uh, it's not even something I ever think about. It's not something that I can meaningfully save up towards. It's just not in the cards, you know, like it's renting forever. Mm-hmm. And I think like this, the, to the extent that, you know, like this movie is presenting idyllic small town America, it's to the extent that contemporary America is a failure. Yeah. I mean, if, if you're saying I want to live in Bedford Falls, really what we're saying is I want to be able to uh, buy a house. I want to know the people in my community. Mm-hmm. Uh, I want to uh, have work that I can see makes a tangible difference and benefit to the people around me rather than the bank balance of some anonymous corporation, you know, 10 states over that doesn't care about me. Mm-hmm. You know, that's that's what this is about. But to say, oh, it's a vision of like the best of small town America is just is kind of uh, not really, as I say, it's not really paying attention to what the film is trying to trying to say. Yeah, yeah, no, no, completely. You're completely right about that one. So you do, do you want to talk about the signage in Bedford Falls? Ah, uh, yes, this is, it's a really small detail that somebody, actually somebody on Twitter pointed out to me that um, th- there's this, there's a big sign uh, at the, the town square that says, you are now entering Bedford Falls. Uh, and from a, from a semiotic point of view, what's very interesting there is the use of the word you. Uh, who is being addressed by the you? You can be plural or singular. And of course, in the context of a film, you is addressed to the audience. Um, and the re- one of the reasons I think the film is so kind of emotionally impactful is because you are, as a viewer, you are interpolated. You are you are hailed as a subject in the Altazarian sense, and you you enter into what feels like a very real geographic space. So whilst you're watching It's a Wonderful Life, you live there. You know, the reason it's so emotionally uh, impactful is because you have entered into Bedford Falls. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I, I think that, that that completely nails it, too. And I think the the, the signage more broadly, you, we, we can connect this reading to because when we uh, when we enter like the 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 negative dimension or whatever, the dimension wherein George Bailey was never born and the world is a much darker place for it. Uh, the, the signing shifts dramatically, right? There's that median that's in the center of the, the downtown area in Bedford Falls, right? We see our characters congregate there countless times throughout the movie. There, there's so many scenes that are pivoted on that location. Um, and when we when we get into into like the, the bad timeline, I guess. Um, what, <laughs> into, what is into the hell world. <laughs> yeah, into the hell world. Into the world where Twitter exists. Um, <laughs> No, when we get there, though, what's in that median besides it's a it's a giant like sign that functions as an anti-human piece of architecture that just says keep moving. Yeah. Yeah. And I think like I, I noticed that for, I've seen this movie. Just, I can't count how many times I've seen this movie. And I noticed it for the first time in my last viewing. Um, and it, it was just like it's so striking to me like that, that there is no more public space like in pottersville the public space has been consumed and like even if it's not monetized you're denied access to it and it's replaced by a sign just telling you to effectively get back to work to go do something productive i i I noticed that today as well and it's like it's 
the the closure of the of the public commons i think is mm-hmm. really really important and as a way of kind of underscoring the difference between uh the, the good and bad timelines uh that that george bailey ends up kind of moving through but before we get on to that and maybe some of the kind of political analysis that underpins that one thing that i think people will probably know about this film is that it is well it's it's explicitly a very religious film right yeah, yeah, it's it's a it is one hundred percent and very directly a Christian movie. Uh, not in the sense of like. Uh, oh the, no! Yeah, not, not in the sense the, that everybody the, probably just heard that in. <laughs> in the sense of like shitty evangelicals in California making God's not dead for this time we really mean it. Where like an atheist professor played yep. by by Kevin Sorbo has a conversion <laughs> experience. When he gets struck by lightning or something, yeah, I, I think it's, it's very vague. I mean, like it's it's using Christian symbology and terminology, but the the religious experience here is very, uh, and I'll use this word intentionally, I guess, numinous. Yeah, yeah, it's it's a, um, it's definitely a a kind of religiously motivated film, but removed in many ways from the kind of uh politicized cultural conservative religion that a lot of people would associate with american christianity now Mm -hmm. um although the roots of that present uh protestant evangelicalism can probably be found in tech texts like this right Uh, it literally opens on a conversation with god right that's how this film begins 100%. One hundred percent, but I think um, we we should talk about what God is and what God looks like in this movie because, like, I think I think that this helps reground the film in in kind of a, a weird a capital W weird context, right? Because like God and the angels in this movie aren't uh, uh, heavenly figures draped in white with with like uh, beards like Zeus, you know? Yeah, white, Je- white Jesus does not exist in this film. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It, it, like they're they're literally galaxies. They're, they're, they're like floating cosmic masses on a scale that no mortal mind can ever fully contain. Right, like, like this is depicting this is a depiction of God that is closer to like Azathoth than it is to like Christ on the cross. Um, I, I mean, I think I would probably say that it's it's both, um, mm-hmm. because you actually have you actually have that kind of transcendent weirdness of these galactic forces just communicating, and then you have this you have the manifestation of Clarence the angel uh, as this mm-hmm. kind of slightly dopey sweet old man who who arrives and tells george all of these horrible things that he really doesn't want to have to deal with yeah yeah no, i i think that i think that is com- completely co- correct and i'm i'm happy that we can now include it's a wonderful life into the broader canon of lovecraftian weird fiction <laughs> <laughs> um there is there is a lot in here about uh faith about belief um mm-hmm. you know the the point is that um it, this is where we kind of can start to see the kind of roots of maybe the contemporary christian conservatism because you know clarence is told that george has lost his belief in himself mm-hmm. that's that's the big problem um 
and there's a lot in, in here of like oh if you just if you just believe but really that is in conflict with with a lot of the stuff that we're about to get into where belief by itself is not enough what's needed is um often collective action works <laughs> sorry i just coughed um yeah works um, <laughs> No, but I think I think um, faith faith is an interesting turning point to get into our next our, our next topic, which was in our notes written in all caps with an exclamation point. <laughs> um, but I think I think you're right. I think this movie is straddling an emerging contradiction uh, uh, because some parts of this movie want to be about individualism and this kind of bootstrap mentality, and other parts of this movie are very much about the systemic nature of things and very much about community. Yeah. And, and one of the scenes that's always been really telling for me is like, how, how, how is faith materialized in this movie? Um, we get, we, we get like some really powerful scenes uh, where George Bailey is praying on his own. Um, but what, what he prays for when he prays on his own is he prays for something for his community. Yeah. Right. Because, because if uh, his business, the bank, the, the building and loan, fails the entire community will fall to potter yeah um everything it will become the pottersville that he will be shown in a moment um and what we see in in like like that beginning the beginning scene um before before we even meet god and the angels right we we have the disembodied prayers of everyone in this community praying for george you know we have we have the entire community banding their religious effort together to try and help a man at his worst and so we're getting we're getting a view of religion that is collective and communal. Real quick, I want to I want to talk about maybe one of my favorite theological writers, um, who was a uh, Dominican Catholic priest uh, and lifelong socialist called Herbert McCabe. Um, mm -hmm. And McCabe has this incredible um, sermon about prayer, uh, part particularly what Catholics would call petitionary prayer, which is where you are asking God for something, and people would say. Oh, it, they would come to talk to him and say, well, oh, I should be praying for X, but I keep getting distracted by by things like I, I really need to pay my mortgage or I hope my grandmother doesn't get sick. And his advice was basically, well, those interruptions are the emergence of your real desires. You know, that you may as well be honest when you pray, right? If you can't be honest, then why bother? <laughs> and, he, uh, and the sentence that I really love and always remember is he says, that people on a on a on a sinking ship tend not to be distracted in their prayers because you'll pray for what you really want and so uh this idea of like uh it's very individual prayer is very individualistic it's not true because in the, the very beginning of this uh film you have these kind of voices all of them all of them people alone you know and what do they all pray for they all pray pray for this collective thing so I think it's a really it's a really interesting idea this notion that like actually you get to see the characters at their most honest and what they are at their most honest is looking for one another they're looking for a uh, a way to defend a community rather than to achieve an individual desire. I I think that is the best possible way way to look at how religion emerges in this movie. You know, like like it is very it is very much about community. You know, it, it is very much about addressing you know the material wrongs of capitalism, right? Like you you can you can as as indeed you just did read this movie through the lens of liberation theology. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, absolutely. 
liberation the- theologians who came up with the idea of the preferential option for the poor. Uh, you know, God is not on the side of Mr. Potter, um, but but God is on the side of the people who are desperately trying to find uh, some dignity and worth and a decent place to live. Um, a really good way of underscoring this is the ending. The ending, which I think is just just great. I, I love the ending. I don't, yeah. I don't, I don't, I don't care that it's sappy. I don't care that it's become a cliche. I love it. Um, which is where he returns home after realizing. Well, he realizes firstly that the most important thing is not himself, dead or alive, but the community and relationships that he's maintained, specifically his wife and kids. Yeah. Um, and what happens is that every single person in the town comes in and provides not just what he needs. This is what makes it a good religious parable. He doesn't just get what he needs. He gets actually infinitely more so than that uh, to the point at which uh the the press photographers who were there to kind of capture his his humiliation have to join in and the police who were there with a warrant for his uh, his arrest have to tear it up and actually give some money as well um and it's just it's just great uh it's done it's done to to the score of singing uh hark the herald angels sing um so it's explicitly a political moment the ending but it is also explicitly a religious moment as well Yes, 100%. And I think when we get, <laughs> I think I've said yes, 100%, like 17 times. I'm gonna try and spice it up a little going forward. <laughs> but I, I think um, w- one thing that when we when we when we really get into the ending here, I don't think the ending of this movie is sentimental. And I don't think that for one major reason. Um, but that'll be that'll be some fun. There's a hook for for 30 minutes in our future. Ooh, <laughs> but um, now now I want to talk about uh, a, a, cr- a classic uh, Hallmark character of Christmas cinema, the FBI. Mm-hmm. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so um, uh, the the FBI actually plays an important role in this movie, and that's they thought it was a, a piece of communist propaganda. And uh, uh, they they actually launched a like covert investigation into the film that was re- revealed some years after the fact. Uh, but I will now read you in full uh, the disclosed FBI memo on It's a Wonderful Life. It reads, with regard to the picture It's a Wonderful Life, redacted stated in substance that the film represents rather obvious attempts to discredit bankers by casting Lionel Barrymore as a Scrooge type so that he would be the most hated man in the picture. This, according to these sources, is a common trick used by communists. In addition, Redacted stated that, in his opinion, the picture deliberately maligned the upper class, attempting to show the people who had money were mean and despicable characters. Uh, it is, it is a, uh, it is a very, it's a wonderful life is, is full of very common communist tricks. (laughs) (laughs) I I was going to say like, this is, this is a first for me, but I think, um, unnamed redacted FBI film critic, uh, come on horror Vanguard. I agree with your take on this movie. (laughs) Time travel from 1946 and learn what podcasting is. It's it's no surprise, right? It's no surprise that there was this red scaring around it. You know, it's it's immediately after the war. Um, the Soviet Union is a global power. Communism is seen by the uh, 
hegemony of the United States as a as a dangerous threat. Like, you know, Reds were were under the bed. Socialism was closer than they thought. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's no surprise that there was this kind of like fervent paranoia. Um, and if if you wanted to kind of be critical about this film, what you could read it as is an attempt to defuse a genuinely communist uh, appropriation of wealth and kind of rechannel that into good moral pieties around community and 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 American identity. I think that's a bit uncharitable, personally, but mm-hmm. I'm not I'm not really that surprised that the FBI was was paying attention to this. <laughs> <laughs> no it's 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 not it's not shocking at all and i think like there's been a lot of commentary after the fact specifically about this uh disclosed fbi memo about it's a wonderful life and it's politics because like when we take a step back and we look at the holistic political scene of it's a wonderful life what we kind of have is a a, a clashing reality which is that the the you know like as the memo states the, the upper class and people with money are in fact despicable. Mm-hmm. You know, like the Potter is the worst. He is literally a Scrooge. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but like, you know, like the, the building and loan is another company. It's a, it's another banking apparatus. You know, like like this movie is literally a small, small businessman must defeat busy, big businessman to save community. You know, so like like even even that, even that tiny sprinkling of of class politic is is too much for the apparatus this movie goes too far and all it's doing is depicting a small businessman trying to win his own yeah uh and and it's not subtle at at all (laughs) yeah (laughs) like potter potter is basically a great gothic villain uh lionel barrymore had been uh scrooge uh in Mm -hmm. very popular radio production Mm-hmm. Um, and so he he's a kind of perfect fit as Mr. Potter, but there is, uh, and this kind of connects back to what our friend uh, John uh, John Leavitt says all the time: subtlety is for cowards. Uh, we do not live in politically subtle times, and we absolutely do not need subtlety <laughs> in our culture. I, I completely agree. And as I want to do, this reminds me of Utah Phillips. Um, he, he has the, he does this amazing rendition of a classic IWW song, Dump the Bosses Off Your Back, which is which is very direct. But in his opening of it, he's talking about like uh, uh, the difference between like, you know, like middle class protest music and the protest music written by the IWW, because the stuff written by the IWW was direct and punchy. Dump the bosses off your back tells you what the song is about in the title of the song. It is catchy and it is fast. And then he contrasts it with um, blowing in the wind. You know, like like the, there's a lot of space between how many seas must the white dove sail before she can rest in the sand and dump the bosses off your back. Um, it's a Wonderful Life is a lot closer to the dump the bosses off your back angle. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And I think the fact that, like, that we can talk about it in those terms now actually shows the ways in which the what we might call the uh, the, the the kind of potterification of the of the global economy and capitalism has only advanced and the ways in which kind of like culture has become more like blown in the wind and less like the explicit uh, polemic of the IWW 
Yeah, yeah. I think that's a really interesting point about how this movie has kind of progressed through culture and in, in its in its relation towards radical politics. Because I think that as as we we we've emerged into the Potterville timeline. You know, like we we have we have an entire economy now built off of renting literally everything. There is an app that you can download that lets you rent clothes. Yeah. Right. Like like everything is for rent today. Yeah. Like like this is the ultimate potter's dream. You know, like there's a handful of companies that let you rent literally every aspect of your life now. And like, can it get worse? Sure. But like that that makes it's a wonderful life and just look that much more extreme. Yeah. Because because what what is what is the point of the uh, Bailey building and loan? It is to allow working class people to own their own homes, not to not to rent them, not to be forced into the slums controlled by Mister Potter, um, but to own their own homes. Mm-hmm. Uh, and like George actually kind of has an argument with Potter quite early on in the film where he makes this point very explicitly as a moral and political argument, right? It isn't done in economic terms. It is not quantified, but it is, um, it is, it, it, in essence, he stands up and says that nothing is too good for the working classes. You know, Potter says, uh, I can't remember it exactly, but there's this moment where he says, you give these people loans, you're going to make them l- lazy. You let these people borrow money so they can build their own homes. You're going to make them lazy instead of being thrifty members of the working classes um and this is the kind of very common argument right that without thrift you are negating the idea of hard work but actually by we know that giving people money doesn't reduce their capacity for work or their interest in working it actually frees them to do their work uh and to live more happily but he makes it a kind of what I, you know, it's a moral argument, right? Nothing is too good for working class people. Working class people deserve better than a slum. You know, they deserve what? What does he say? He says oh, a couple of good rooms in a bathroom is is what people deserve, and that's not a that's not a strictly economic argument, but that is a moral and political argument. Yeah, I, I mean, like. There, there is so much in the conversations between George Bailey and Mr. Potter that I think it's just wildly instructive, right? You know, Mr. Mr. Potter is arguing that like, oh, we need to we need to keep the the boots down on these people to turn them into a thrifty working class so they don't become lazy. It's the same propaganda you can read uh, in any edition of the New York Times today. It's a voice that is still alive and well. And and what what does Bailey say back to this? You know, like, do you know how long it takes a working man to save five thousand dollars? Yeah, uh, the the working rabble of this community do most of the living and dying in this town, right? Like he isn't advocating for some like post capitalist worker controlled society. He's merely arguing for basic human decency. Yes, but that, uh, but that, uh, uh, within the film, and actually even more so now, yes, is a, it is a political argument. It is a deeply political argument, and unfortunately, it's become an increasingly radical argument to say that people deserve to own their homes. Yeah. You know, people deserve shelter is unfortunately a radical stance to have at this moment in time. Um, 
George Bailey would have been 100% in the DSA or something. <laughs> George Bailey would have been a DSA guy. <laughs> I actually think if more people in DSA were modeling themselves off of, of George Bailey, that would be a good thing indeed. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, he, he makes he makes very simple arguments, which is that as, as it, to kind of translate the direct quotes, uh, the source of value is in labor. Labor is entitled to all it creates, and nothing is too good for working class people. Mm-hmm. And that is that is uh, not just moral; that's that's political because that is directly a threat to the interests of Mister Potter. You know, he says that he spends years trying to close down the building and loan, years and presumably quite a, quite a bit of money, because it's because it represents a threat. It represents. Uh, self-organizing among working people who do not need to go as bailey puts it bowing and scraping to to potter yeah like what's astonishing to me is how much effort literally goes into destroying or to attempting to destroy the building alone you know like like by the by the end of the movie potter is conspiring with a with a a member of congress Yep. You know, to, to, to help shut it down, he's he's calling in favors. He literally steals $8,000 to accomplish this. And this is all for the affront of helping people afford decent homes. Yeah, absolutely. Should we talk about Pottersfield, uh, Pottersville then? Yeah. The, the, the highest stage of capitalism, as our good friend <laughs> and fellow poster Lenin would say. <laughs> <laughs> Lenin would have liked this movie. <laughs> <laughs> that might that might just be the hottest take it's, my, it's the hottest take i've ever had is that you, you probably would have enjoyed it <laughs> um yeah should we talk I, I i kind of wanted to pick up on a little bit more about what you were saying about this idea of like the growth of the rentier economy like mm-hmm. what does mr potter want with the town what does it look like when bailey's not there um and it looks it basically it it looks like the world we live in now, right? Yeah, yeah. I think th- there's a lot to pick apart in his the the view of the apocalypse. You know, it, it, the 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 Pottersville world. Because um, I think there, there's some stuff that works really well, and there's some stuff that doesn't. Right, the stuff that works really well is everyone is necessarily meaner and more cruel. Right, because this is this is a world where you have to cut more throats in order to survive. Right, like the the basic needs of survival are structured upon participating in oppression. So it's harder to exit these systems, and there is no community anymore. Right, like the building alone was destroyed years ago, and so like everyone has been atomized, and we're all at each other's throats because of it. That stuff, I think, is incredibly successful. There is a little like terrible moralizing about addiction and yeah. sex work yeah we can right? because we can we can accept the critique of atomization and um competition as the default state of social relations without accepting and aspiring to the weird prudish 40s era moral panicking in there and it's 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 a it's a prudishness that I think is unfortunately alive and well today because why why what do the businesses change in downtown right instead of instead of being uh, a, a mom and pop sodi shop and and uh, the town theater you know and like I love you you old building alone you know like like instead of all of that stuff it, they they become like 
strip clubs and bars, right? When when addiction is a medical condition, right? It's not a moral vice, and neither is sex work, right? Sex work is labor. Mm-hmm. You know, it's got its own unique set of material conditions. That's definitely for sure. Just like every job has, but it's still a job. It's still work. And this movie is presenting those things as moral failures of the town. And I think that that's a hole in in the world that it becomes. Yeah, absolutely. But again, you know, fitting with the 40s, the, the, the Puritanism, the moral panicking, the Cold War fear of... of communism and and uh shifts in morality um but actually so all of that we can kind of see as as very situated but like that that understanding that by making competition the basis of social relations you degrade social relations you make you make people crueler towards one another uh i actually think that's that's like very prophetic in lots of ways Mm mm-hmm yeah, yeah, and I think like like the scene in the bar too is really telling. I think for for a lot of things, right? Because like the 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 town goes from like doing their best to keep it together and to survive and to resist to the kind of like decay that Potter Potter's vision for the world is bringing. Um, and then once we get to like the bad timeline, the bar. It goes from being like a place where the town can come together and celebrate and like, you know, have fun, drink their woes away, whatever, to to just being like so abject and cruel. Mm. Yeah. You know, um, Mr. Gower appears there. Um, you know, this 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 person who's been who's suffered and has been through the 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 the, the carceral uh, system which has clearly exacerbated all of his addiction problems he's 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 homeless he's got nowhere to go uh and he's turned into this kind of like figure of sport you know it's it's a game for the people who are who kind of uh are there now rather than being something that would be about how do we how do we help this person how do we uh empower them to kind of get their life back under their own control and to you know it the the cruelty becomes kind of baked into the system Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, one hundred percent. So, are you ready to go to the ending? Let's do it. Let's do it. Let's let's. Um. Oh, we should we should talk about one final point before we get there. Yeah, yeah. Which which point is that? <laughs> let's talk about class consciousness and the run on the bank. Ooh, let's do it. We have to talk about the Great Depression. Uh, a a background to the movie, I think, in some ways, we're a weirdly silent part of the background. Uh, yes, absolutely. Um, do you want to start there then? Uh, yeah, yeah. I think like so. What's interesting about this movie is that like uh, you know we we see the Great Depression hit, you know, like and then there's the, there's there's a run at the bank and everyone is closing out their money, right? Everyone's closing their accounts, withdrawing all their cash. Um, and, and, you know, like as is people probably aware these days, especially, but like banks don't actually carry all your money with, with them, right? They only carry some of your physical cash on hand at any given time, right? So like if everybody went to the bank to withdraw all their money as cash, the banks would be unable to uh, fulfill. Yep. And that's what we see here in the movie. Everybody uh, does a run on the bank and closes out all their money and then the bank collapses. 
But what happens when the bank collapses? Uh, Mr. Potter buys out the bank. He buys out everyone's accounts uh, for pennies to the dollar because he actually has enough cash to pay out. So, so through, through his kind of capitalistic machinations, he winds up owning even more of the town. And we, we see that when we're in like the, the, the negative timeline, right? Like Potter owns the cops, Potter owns the bank, he owns everybody. Yeah. And we wouldn't like when uh, Potter, Potter calls George Bailey to taunt him, you know, because he knows the banking and loan can't pay out everyone's accounts. Right. So, so he's like, oh, do you need, do you need me to send some police over there? I can send you some police. Yeah. Right. Like he, his ownership of the town is complete at this point. And it's the reason why the building and loan is important is because it represents a holdout, right? So the building and loan, it gets rammed with customers um, who rule angrily demanding their cash. But all of the all of the cash that the, the, the building and loan holds was called in by the bank who needed to pay out their loans. So um, what's interesting is that George tries to kind of stabilize the situation, but by do- but does it not by appealing to people as rational um economic agents but collectively right he says that like you know where is your money your money isn't here it's in your neighbor's house it's in your house it's in and what are you gonna do are you gonna throw your neighbor out of their house Mm -hmm. you know we didn't do that to you when when all of you went through hard times um and what's interesting is that like you know class consciousness is a very fragile thing it's a very it's a very fragile thing um and it can easily be uh destroyed and the conditions for it can be destroyed and so the building alone represents a potential institute institution uh wherein working class people can mutually benefit one another under their own control and agency so it becomes incredibly important for that to survive right so when you have a run on the bank what you have is you have the the uh individuals acting as kind of economic agents that's all they are um Mm -hmm. they all demand their money and so george ends up kind of giving away the money that he was saving for his honeymoon um uh, and it to to me that's kind of i find that scene really uh moving to watch because uh what he asks for is not how much are you entitled to but how much do you need you know from each according to his ability to each according to his need he's someone with the ability to 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 meet demand as long as the demand is for what people need in that moment of crisis not what they think they are entitled to this is such a marxist movie <laughs> <laughs> I or love it. Very, or, or at the very least, that's what happens when a Marxist watches Frank Capra. True, true. I, yeah, I guess that, that's probably a better way to understand it. <laughs> but like, I, I see like, I don't know, like like le- le- left being in left politics and understanding solidarity and wanting to lift up people who are poor and suffering. Like, it's just such a basic good thing to want for other people that like when movies depict good things, they can't help but moving in this direction. And I think that brings us on quite nicely to talking about the ending. Lots of people would say that this is a very sentimental en- ending. You you dangled the hook. You dangled the hook. <laughs> Most people would be wrong. <laughs> and we have arrived. So what do you think about the ending? So so I think I think I'm gonna some fine uh dissection work I'm gonna do here. But what what I think this ending is very emotional, but it's not sentimental. 
right? Because because that emotion isn't hollow. It's all been so painfully earned throughout the entirety of the film. Mm-hmm. We have watched up until the ending of this movie, two hours of George sacrificing himself, sacrificing his goals, sacrificing his dreams to try and help this community. And like all of this, this emotional payoff we get at the end is earned throughout the course of this movie. There's nothing in that ending that's forced or hollow. And there's a very important thing that doesn't happen, which I think is what prevents us from entering sentimentality. The thing that doesn't happen, Mr. Potter doesn't doesn't come into the room and say like, oh, I've been visited by the spirit of Christmas. Your debts are forgiven. Yes. yes Mr. Potter never shows up in that final scene when the whole community comes together to celebrate, you know, to celebrate Christmas and to celebrate their unity and, and to save themselves from total collapse. Mr. Potter never shows up and is redeemed. You know, he, he continues to be a villain throughout the end of the movie. Like there is no redemption for him because he's so soaked in this capitalistic corruption that he can't find it. And unlike what I think is a much worse movie made by a very sentiment or a, a much worse story rather made by a very sentimental author, um, a Christmas Carol, right? Like our, our horrible corporate despot doesn't, doesn't get to find that redemption at the end. He's not a part of this. So there's no, because a lesser movie would have done that. A lesser movie would have had that extremely sentimental twist where Mr. Potter shows up and he's like, Oh, I've it's Christmas. I've seen the error of my ways. We'll fight again tomorrow. And he does something noble. No, he he ends the movie still stealing their $8,000. Yes. No, I would completely agree. And doesn't that just underscore the point, which is that, like, Mr. Potter is not needed. Mm -hmm. He's not essential. Yeah. You know, he isn't he isn't the thing that kind of save saves George Bailey and saves 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 his family, saves the, the building alone. What saves it is the mutual aid and recognition of our interdependence shared by working class people. Absolutely. Like what we see at the end of this movie is just a fantastic depiction of mutual aid. You know, like the the entire community bands together, each person giving what they are capable of giving to resolve a material problem. And by the end of it, it's well resolved. Yeah. And it's and it's not just it's not just resolved. It's like excessive. It's abundant. You know, mm-hmm. one of his one of his friends turns up and says, uh, "Oh, I got a telegram that said you were in trouble." Here's twenty five thousand dollars. So we we, <laughs> we got to talk about Sam. We got to talk about yes. Sam Wainwright. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so so Sam Wainwright. Um, a, a lot of a lot of George's peers went off to college, moved to moved to New York City. Got got uh, were allowed to explore their lives in ways that George wasn't. Sam Wainwright is one of those guys. Um, Sam uh, Sam's father. He's he's a rich kid. Is 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 Sam Sam Wainwright's background? Sam Wainwright's dad uh, winds up going all in on the plastics industry, right? As it first emerges, right? Sam goes in on it. George he he can't bet the farm on on this wild new thing called plastic. He doesn't know what we know now in twenty twenty that plastic rules the world. Mm-hmm. Um, so he he doesn't he doesn't make the bet because for him it's a huge bet, right? Um, and he can't he can't monetarily do that. Uh, but Sam Wainwright becomes filthy rich. He's loaded, you know, by the end of this movie. Uh, and when Sam Wainwright instructs his company to give George up to $25,000, I would argue that that's an example of him being a, a class trader in the best sense of that term. He, he, he is the, He's the angles of this film. <laughs> 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 the, 
That is the best reading of It's a Wonderful Life I've ever heard. <laughs> but but really, really, the thing that I was thinking about in the context of all this money is like, what does it reflect? It re- doesn't reflect how much, you know, Mr. Potter is the one who says to him, you're worth more dead than you are alive because Potter can only conceive of relationships in strictly quantifiable and economic terms. The amount of money that George gets is like, you know, it's probably 10 times what the building alone actually needed, right? Maybe even more. Who knows? That's a massive pile of money that gets, that gets, but it's like what, it's a reflection of the fact that actual community relationship interdependency a a, a a gift economy and I, what i mean by that is like giving where it's not re- expected for it to be reciprocal you know that's that's a market mm-hmm. economy you give something and you get something a gift economy is you give something but you may not get anything back and that's fine it's non-quantifiable right uh relationship the relationships that we share that kind of numinous web of connections that resonate with impacts across uh continents and uh, frequently across years and lifetimes cannot and never will be reduced down to that list of dollars and cents that sits in the ledger in mr potter's desk and that is a beautiful thing i couldn't agree more and I think that's that's a fantastic place to to end this episode. That is, if if there if there is good uh, uh, magic within the holiday season, it's in the gift economy. It's in freely giving what you can freely give to people who need and want stuff. Mm-hmm. I I think that that is something beautiful, and that's what we see at the end of this movie. And like, even even on a cosmic scale, right? Like, you know, George's salvation isn't just his; it's the salvation of this community. It's the resistance to the entropy of capitalism. And, and you know, even Clarence, our second second class angel, becomes a first class angel at the end of the movie. <laughs> so so in a in a totalizing sense, you know, uh your your like Marxist analysis of the ending of this movie, I think, is incredibly powerful. <laughs> I feel like there's so much that we've not talked about here. We've not talked about his relationship with Mary. Mm-hmm. Uh, like we've not talked about the the dance contest at the the high school, which is just a really adorable scene. We haven't talked about their house. Um, you know, we we could go on, we could go on. I think for another for another hour at least. And um, that's 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 the things. The best episodes we have are the ones where we're ending it. And I'm just thinking, like in the back of my head, there are just like dozens of things that we haven't gotten to fully cover and, and to give like the, the serious attention they deserve. And I think that's what, that's what makes some of these texts just like absolutely incredible for, for film analysis is that like, you're never going to run out of stuff with a movie like this. Yeah, absolutely. You know, there are certain films, I think that you, you see them uh, once and you don't really need or want to watch them again. You might have really loved it. I think I think everyone's got a film like that where you watched it and you went, this is amazing, but I don't really want or need to watch this again. You know, they lose the magic on uh, repeat viewing. But, you know, without getting too saccharine, I think there are certain films, there are certain works of art which, um, like music, where the familiarity is part of their charm. And that's the case with it's a wonderful life. I've seen it. I've seen it dozens of times. I'm sure you've seen it dozens of times. Uh, and every time, there's still something in it which 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 will uh, 
just move me, which is what great art is supposed to do. But it is a horror movie. <laughs> this is this is a Christmas ghost story, right? This is this is about the spectral, inherently unsettling nature of a magical season. Uh, absolutely. Um, I can't think of a better place to wrap things up than that. Yes, thank you, uh, thank you so much for joining us in this first installment of "It's a Technically Horror Christmas with Horror Vanguard." Uh, we can't wait to show you even more movies that are technically horror films throughout the course of this holiday season. Stay, stay, stay spooky. <laughs> there we go. What there we go. go. Thanks for tuning in, creeps. And remember, stay spooky. <laughs>